I'm speaking with Rick Fosters from the Vrije Universiteit Brussel in Belgium. His work explores the tension between Northern Dutch and Southern Dutch in the past and the impact of that tension on the present-day language situation. Here he shares his perspective on the ways this work can reduce present-day European conflict. Hello Rick, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, it's nice to be here. Um, I'm Rick Fosters indeed. Um, I teach Dutch linguistics and social linguistics at VUB, the Free University of Brussels. My main area of research is historical social linguistics of Dutch. So I mostly look into the history of, of Dutch in the early and late modern period. Uh, most of my focus is on Dutch in Belgium or in what is today Belgium. Uh, what historically is usually called the Southern Low Countries or the Southern Netherlands, or at least the Dutch-speaking part of that, because there's a significant French-speaking part as well. And now the Netherlands and Belgium share a standard language that is recognized by both countries uh, as Dutch. Um, how that came about, uh, that, that's what I, I focus on and sort of what the role was of the, those Southern Low Countries. What those Southern Low Countries contributed to that because most of the action happened in, in the North. Most of this process of standardization, sort of the move towards standard languages happened in, in, in the Northern provinces of Holland, uh, around, you know, bigger cities like, like Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam, central areas in what is uh, the Netherlands today. Um, I, I'd like to clarify one thing, because when I think of Belgium, I always think of a friction between Dutch and French. Are you telling me now that there is an additional friction or additional opposition within the Dutch language of its own? Um, so we have sort of a tension between two different languages. But on the other hand, you also have a tension between different varieties of the Dutch language. So there's a tension within the language um, as well. Um, because those southern varieties of the language were at least seen as very different or perceived as very distinct from, from northern varieties of the language uh, spoken in, in the Netherlands. And actually it's all the more interesting when you delve into history because the whole history of the northern and the southern Netherlands is also quite, quite different and the different historical trajectories have always been presumed to have led to different um, linguistic trajectories as well. How different were the varieties as such? Well, it depends on what period of time you look at it. Um, if you look at Dutch spoken in the Netherlands and in Belgium today, it's certainly mutually intelligible, at least the standard varieties with local accents or regional accents are mutually intelligible, there's no doubt about that. That doesn't hold true for local dialects. Um, there's a lot of dialect variation, so speakers from even within Belgium, from one side of the country, wouldn't necessarily understand everything speakers from the other side of the country would say when they're speaking a local dialect. But if you look at how historians of the language have taken that back into the past, the discourse is quite different and they talk about you know, a very large and ever-widening gap between um, northern and southern varieties of, of, of the language, uh, at least up, up to the certain point in the 19th century. Sort of the whole history of the two regions, of the two territories, um, is a history of convergence and divergence, of territories getting together but then being split up politically. 
Um, most notably is the split at the end of the 16th century. Um, the northern and the southern Low Countries get split up into two larger entities, uh, where the northern provinces uh, succeed in proclaiming and maintaining their independence, and you get the sort of Dutch Republic uh, of the 17th century, you know, an important European uh, force, uh, think, uh, you know, the big Dutch seafaring empire, and so on. Um, period when the whole standardization process really took off. We can say a bit more about that in a second. And at the same time, the southern Low Countries, so what's now Belgium, sort of got cut off from all of that um, because we didn't succeed in, well, we, the southern provinces tried to proclaim independence from the Spanish rule at that time, but didn't succeed in maintaining that. And they were um, re reclaimed by, by the Spanish crown, uh, re-Catholicized, and sort of that led to a different linguistic history as well. You know, whereas the, the Northern Netherlands entered their golden age and, and the language started being codified and being developed into a standard language, in the South, well, what happened there is people just didn't have, were cut off from that. They, they had to fall back on local dialects, patois, you know, they could only communicate with people from the same village. Um, okay. um, and on top of that, there's French, of course. That's where this double conflict comes in. So a lot of influence from French and, you know, people spoke Dutch, but it was so heavily influenced by French that you could hardly recognize it was still Dutch, you know, the kind of... Uh, a uh, strong influence of, of language com contact. So there's this short period when the northern and the southern territories are reunified and that's very often seen as a family reunion, a sort of very significant moment um, when um, um, the southern low countries sort of get to catch up again with what had been happening in the north. Okay. If I understand you well, there was a clear difference between northern Dutch and southern Dutch at the time of that reunion. Yeah. yeah. And how did that evolve into the present day situation? In other words, do we still have that clear opposition nowadays? Well, it evolved into what we have nowadays. Um, over the course of the 19th century, when you had a lot of debate about um, what we call the selection step of standardization. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stop um, you there. What is a selection step? And you also mentioned before standardization. Could you briefly explain what, what, this, what this is all about? So standardization is the process where particular varieties of language, dialects and so on develop into proper languages, right? Where the norms for those languages get selected and then get codified, for instance, that means written down in grammars, dictionaries and so on. The very first step is the step of selection, uh, which variety of the language is the basis for the, the, the standard. What factors determine the choices that are made, that are being made there? Well, it's not so much a conscious decision, it's more circumstantial. Uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, where political, cultural, economic prestige lies. Okay. There's no, it's not a, a surprise that the basis for the standard of Dutch is in Holland, around Amsterdam, Rotterdam, the big and important cities, the, the places with cultural, with economic capital, at the time when standardization was happening. If we take that to the present day, uh, some 400 years later, we have standard Dutch, not only in the Netherlands, but only in Flanders. 
Uh, is that the same language or are there differences between, between language spoken in those parts nowadays? So that's the whole issue that was being debated over the course of the 19th century. So you get these debates where people have a sense that like the language in Flanders is just a bunch of dialects heavily influenced by French and what we need to do to protect um, the language against French because there's always this imminent threat of French um, that's present uh, certainly in the 19th century, um, much less so in later times. Um, to protect against French, we need, a, we need a standard language and then you have two options. One option is basically to create your own standard and try to develop a, a new Belgian-Dutch or Flemish-Dutch or Flemish or Belgian or whatever you want. Um, that's one route you can go down or the other one is um, to um, link up with the uh, already existing standard uh, from the northern low countries okay. at the time. Yeah. And which, which choice did they make? Well, they made a second choice. Mm -hmm. They made a choice to link up with what was happening in the north and that was the successful strategy that led to the fact that there, we now speak about Dutch as one language we don't speak about. There are no dictionaries of Belgian or grammars of Belgian uh, or Flemish or whatever. Um, you know, there are grammars of Dutch. Um, so this is the choice, this is the route they chose, and this is what led to the fact that we have one language now. Okay, you mentioned that your research actually, actually changed uh, our view of the way the language evolved in North and South. Could you briefly tell something about that? Yeah, so what, what we see when we look at what's actually happening on the ground in terms of what people are doing with their language, it's quite different from what people are saying they're doing. Um, this is something we know from social linguistics in the present day. You know, you can't just ask people what they're, what variants they're using. You can't just ask them what they're doing with the language because people lie. Of course, they don't necessarily lie intentionally, but people don't realize what they are doing with their language. They're not trustworthy informants unless you actually listen to what they're doing. There's always this big gap between the way people speak about language use and what people actually do in their language. That's also true historically and we see that this whole sort of idea of a very wide gap between northern and southern varieties of the language um, after the separation, the political separation, at the end of the 16th century, we don't see that in the data. You know, um, northern and southern varieties are closer to one another that, that, than one would, would have expected based on, on the literature. Um, and also at this time of reunification, the early 19th century, where both varieties sort of come into contact again, we see that the differences aren't really that significant. So your research clearly contributed to revealing a number of misunderstandings or misinterpretations of the actual language situation in the past. I also hear that your research allows us to have a fresh look at language history and to write a new type of language history based on facts rather than on grand narratives. What's the relevance of your findings for the present day situation if we try to bridge the past and the present, especially from this conflict uh, uh, type of view? So I think that to reduce conflict and language conflict we need to delve into the past and we need to try to challenge these grand narratives of language history that are so central to our way of thinking about language in the past because those challenge uh, challenging those is uh, challenging the 
um, the ideological foundations very often of what language is nowadays. I think that makes us realize what standard language norms mean today, makes us realize the um, maybe limited impact of discussions about, about norms, but it also helps us tackle issues of linguistic insecurity, um, um, linguistic discrimination and, and so on. And I think specifically for, for Dutch that translates to sort of this idea that we had to adopt northern standards of Dutch as a blockade against uh, sort of the threat of French, um, which made speakers of southern varieties of Dutch for a very long time feel um, feel less secure about our language use, uh, feelings of linguistic inferiority that you very often see. It's not something just limited to Dutch, but that you often see in language areas where one language is spread out over different nations um, and um, sort of more speakers of more peripheral varieties have these feelings of linguistic in inferiority, um, insecurities, um, a very strong tradition of purism, um, but that also leads to linguistic discrimination. But then we also need to think about what the consequences are for the present uh, of what we've uncovered and we do need to make that link back and we do need to sort of challenge these language ideologies that are dominant in society that are very often based on an uh, um, mistaken or incomplete understanding of, of the past. Do you think that there is a, um, a kind of tolerance or growing tolerance towards um, more variability within that standard language and, and can that have specific social consequences for, for the speakers of the language? I think that depends a lot on what context you're looking at and I think that diverges greatly from one language area to another. Um, if you look at languages like Norwegian, there's huge tolerance for linguistic variation uh, within the standard and outside of the standard. Um, if you look at languages like Dutch, I think that tolerance is less there, although it's certainly growing and there's certainly recognition of, for instance, today a Belgian Dutch uh, and a Dutch Dutch and also a Suriname Dutch uh, standard. That's, there's no doubt about that. So, so the whole concept of standard is widening to some extent, but at the same time, you know, there's extreme stigmatization of other varieties that are not part of that standard. Uh, uh, intermediate varieties very often, um, you know, that are sort of less formal variants of the standard, uh, but they're not really dialectal either. That, that's certainly part of, of recent developments as well. Is that one of the major tasks ahead for linguists nowadays and for social linguists, making people realize that variation is not something strange but is something which is very normal? I mean it's very hard to convince people that you know that this particular way of speaking that they just find ugly and wrong is just a variant or just a variety of the language and serves some communicative purposes. Um, I think that is an important insight that no linguist would doubt you know that that's, I think, the core of what social linguistics has been um, working on, has been proving, has been showing for the past uh, 50, 60 years. But um, we, haven't been, we haven't done a very good job convincing a very large audience of that. How could we change that? Do you see paths, pathways forward? Well, I mean, we do need to go into society and try to convince people of this, of course. And there are different ways of doing that. And rather than um, assuming a spot as a sage on a stage, 
it's maybe a good idea to actually try to involve people in your research and involve people um, that are not linguists in the directions that you want to take with your research. Um, but I think there's also an opportunity for people taking historical perspectives here um, because it's easier, of course, to realize in a historical context that's still slightly further removed from, from your present-day person um, that, that something is maybe ridiculous or, or, uh, or just wrong or not confirmed by, by research than it is when it gets very close to, close to home. I mean, people can sort of, re when we talk about this gap between language use and what people say about language yeah, and the way that what they do is not the same as what they say they do, well, if you, you know, confront people with examples of that from the 18th or 19th century, they'll readily accept that, of course, they'll chuckle at these, you know, uh, stupid 19th century people who don't realize that they're not, what they're doing is not consistent with what they're saying they're doing. Um, maybe that's the first step towards making people realize that, you know, this is not just something happening in the 19th century, but this is something that's very typical of, of users of any language. Okay, thank you very much, Rick. I think that everything you've told us um, clearly shows that the relevance of looking at language history and language variation in the past on the basis of original sources is extremely important to reformulate uh, language history, to make language history uh, more consistent with uh, the facts as found in the documents and not uh, with the grand narratives. I think you also showed us that there is still a lot of work ahead of us. I thank you very much for this interview and I wish you loads of success with your uh, continuing research. Thank you.